in view of the difficult situation in which we all in Europe are now, I have quite many things to say. So let me begin. Today, the very idea of a radical social transformation appears as an impossible dream. But this term, impossible, should make us think. Impossible and possible are distributed in strange ways today. On the one hand, in the domain of personal freedoms and scientific technology, we are told again and again how nothing is impossible. We can enjoy sex in all its perverse versions. Entire archives of music, films are available for downloading. Going to space is available to everyone. Okay, everyone with money. Uh, there is even the prospect of enhancing our physical, psychic abilities, of manipulating our genetic base up to the gnostic dream of achieving immortality by way of transforming our identity into a software and then we just download ourselves into a new hardware. So again, everything is possible. On the other hand, especially in the domain of socio-economic relations, our era perceives itself as the era of maturity in which with the collapse of communist states, humanity finally has abandoned the old millenarian dreams and accepted the constraints of reality, which means, of course, capitalist reality, with all its impossibilities. You cannot engage in large collective acts, which we are told always end in totalitarian terror, cling to the old welfare state, it makes you non-competitive, and so on and so on. Uh, so this is for me the basic paradox. Everything is possible. Maybe, I don't know, you can, we will be able to live eternally. You will a be able, they are already making experiments. I'm not kidding, in New York, I met some surgeons. For a man to get three penises so that you can do it with three. All this is possible, but you cannot raise the taxes to finance culture for 1%. That's impossible. You ruin everything and so on. So, uh, uh, again, our first task is to be always aware that when we are told this is possible, this is not possible, and so on, uh, we are talking about ideology, not about cold facts. Uh, but the crucial point to always bear in mind here is that uh, we live in what I'm tempted to call the post-political era of the naturalization of economy. Political decisions are, as a rule, presented as matters of pure economic necessity. When austerity measures are imposed, we are repeatedly told that this is simply how things have to be done. In such conditions, the exercise of power, and that's crucial, no longer primarily relies on censorship, but on unconstrained permissiveness. I would like to quote here my friend Alain Badiou, who wrote passage. Since it is sure of its ability to control the entire domain 
of the visible and the audible via the laws governing commercial circulation and democratic communication empire today's global society no longer censors anything. All art and all thought is ruined when we accept this permission to consume, to communicate and to enjoy. We should become pitiless censors of ourselves." End of quote. And effectively, today, we seem to be at the opposite point of the ideology of the glorious 60s. The mottos of spontaneity, creative self-expression, and so on, are all taken over by the system. The old logic of the system of power reproducing itself through repression, through rigidly channeling the subject's spontaneous impetuses is left behind. Non-alienated spontaneity, self-expression, self-realization, they all directly serve the system, which is why pitiless self-censorship is today a sine qua non, a necessary condition of emancipatory politics. And I mean this quite seriously. Today, more than ever, we can clearly see how difficult it is really to imagine another world. How? When we think that our imagination exploded into another dimension, it's really just the, what I like to call the phantasmatic core, the innermost dream-like structure of our own uh, society. Uh, I think that the lesson that we have to assume today in our post-revolutionary era. By this, I mean the following, and that's why I, I advocate a paradoxical return from Marx to Hegel. Uh, our situation is a very Hegelian one, I claim. The revolution happened, not all around, but 20th century was the century of communism, of reactions to communism. Basically, the communist project failed. And our problem is how to avoid the cynical conclusion, okay, it failed, let's play the game. There is no alternative. How to remain faithful to the radical emancipatory project without, of course, repeating its mistakes. And here, I claim we have to go to the end, which means to the beginning. Although the analysis of capitalism elaborated by Marx in his Capital is still an unsurpassed model, it has its failures, its limitations. I think it can be demonstrated, which I will not do here, of course, that uh, the, the implicit vision of post-capitalist, communist, however we call it, society that you find in Marx is still a capitalism without capitalism. Marx correctly identified the core of capitalism as this, uh, 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 permanent push towards self-reproduction, self-expansion, and so on and so on. And his idea was that if, even if you take away 
the form of the capital. This expansive self-reproduction with explode will explode in an even more free way. So I think that in a way for Marx, literally, his vision of communism was capitalism without capitalism. That is to say, this capitalist dynamic of exploding productive power of humanity without the capitalist form. To go very quickly through it, just a, meta a metaphor to hint this at you, to give you a hint. What, just an indication, this is of course not an analysis. What Marx didn't see is the, the paradox which Jacques Lacan, my teacher, uh, identified as the paradox of what he calls objectita, object kleines a, the object cause of desire, which is an obstacle, but at the same time, a positive condition of what it is the obstacle to. Let me give you a crazy example, which I think makes perfectly this point. Uh, uh, once, in, it happened in uh, Latin America, I will not tell you where, uh, uh, a voluptuous elder lady, I don't know, maybe she was flirting with me, she told me that, uh, basically her point was, I'm still beautiful and sexually attractive in spite of, and she told me how her last lover, when she saw her naked, told her that if she just were to lose two or three kilos, her body would have been perfect. And I told her, just don't lose two or three kilos. Because, you know, you often find this paradox that, like, two or three kilos less and you would be perfect. But this ideal of perfection only arises when you do have two or three kilos too much. You see my point, you take away the obstacle, that small element which seems to disturb the perfection, and you lose this potential virtual perfection itself. This is the paradox Lacan is aiming at, that you have, let's put it in abstract terms, an ideal, but some small element disturbs it. But what appears as a disturbing mediator is really the condition of an object. And it can happen at all levels in eroticism especially. For example, a good friend of mine when I was young was in love with a girl, and these were still a little bit more patriarchal times, so he was, in order to gain the access to the girls, he visited her family and talked with her father often. He thought that the whole point is that he has to talk with her father just to have full access to the girl. But then when the father went on a long trip, it no longer functioned with the girl. You see, what he thought is just an obstacle. Oh my God, I have to go through this ritual, talking with the father, was not really an obstacle. It was the, the girl as the object of his desire entered his fantasy of desire only mediated through the father. You take the father, the obstacle away, you lose the object. Okay, I will not go more into it now. Uh, I just want to say that how at this level, how difficult it is to really imagine a new world. 
how often what we present to ourselves as a radically new world is just some phantasmatic core of the old world, which means we have to abandon, break many taboos here. Now comes a little bit more problematic part of my talk. First, I claim we should abandon not only the two main forms of the 20th century state socialism, the social democratic welfare state and, of course, the Stalinist party dictatorship. But we should also abandon, I think so, the very standard by means of which radical left usually measures the failure of the first two. This libertarian vision of communism as free association, multitude, councils, rete, the anti-representation anti-representationist direct democracy based on citizens' permanent engagement. I think that the critique of political representation as a pacifizing alienation reaches here its limit. The idea to organize society in its entirety as a network of associations, councils, and so on, is, uh, <coughs> ignores a triple impossibility. First, there are numerous cases in which representing, speaking for others is a necessity. It is cynical to say that victims of mass violence from Auschwitz to Rwanda or the mentally ill, not to mention suffering animals, should organize themselves and speak for themselves. No, we, somebody has to speak for them. Second point, when we effectively get a mass mobilization of hundreds of thousands of people self-organizing themselves horizontally, Tahrir Square, Gezi Square, whatever, or Syntagma Square in uh, Athens, we should never forget that they remain a minority, that the silent majority remains outside non-represented. I'm here much more of a pessimist. I think that most you can get from majority, from the majority, is a kind of a silent acceptance, but Political activity is by definition always constrained. And the third point, the permanent political engagement of people has a limited time span. After a couple of weeks or maybe months, the majority disengages. And the problem is how to safeguard the results of the uprising at this point in time when things return to normal. So I think that this is why I never was uh, too enthusiastic about this great moment, you know, oh my God, we all cry, one million people on square, whatever, Syntagma Square, Tahrir Square, we were all one and so on. No, what interests me is the morning after. That is to say, the measure of a successful, whatever we call it, revolution, rebellion, revolt, social change, is how will ordinary people feel the change the morning after when things return to normal? And here, our fantasies reach a limit. I hope some of you saw the film which I hate. 
V for vendetta. I mean, even Tony Negri fell for it. Wonderful multitude, rebellion. But do you remember the final scene? Thousands of unarmed Londoners, they all wear the famous Guy Fawkes masks, march towards Parliament, and without orders, the military allows the crowd to pass. The people takes over. Okay, a nice ecstatic moment, but to put it in brutal terms, I, and then the film ends, but I would be ready to sell my mother into slavery to see V for Vendetta part two. <laughs> what happens then? You know, it's easy for the people to win. What happens then? This is why, because you know, you can see this precisely, at least it was like this when I was younger in France. Every honest conservative, from Sarkozy or whoever, they are proud to say, yeah, but of course, I was on the barricades in, in, in 68 and so on, you know. How to break out of this cycle where revolt or whatever we call it, rebellion, uh, is just this momentary transgression, happy moment, carnival, and then things return to normal. All conservatives like this revolt, like, you know, people let off their steam and so on. And I think a whole list can be made of these, what I call them, false inherent transgressions. Like coming from an ex-communist country. I think that political jokes played this role also. Although people were arrested for telling them. But I think they, political jokes, jokes against nomenclatura itself, ruling nomenclatura, played a very constructive role. It simply allowed people a small opening, telling the jokes and so on, so that then you are ready to go on in your miserable life. And it's typical, there was a total fantasy, which was, I learned, operative in all socialist countries. It's wrong for theoretical reasons and also empirically it's wrong, but it's a beautiful fantasy, it has a correct insight. Namely, the fantasy is that within the secret police there was an ultra-secret department whose function was to produce political jokes to keep the people satisfied. Not jokes against the West, but jokes uh, 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 against their own party leaders and so on. And you know where this idea came to me? In Yugoslavia, which was a little bit a special case, in, throughout the 80s, when everybody saw the writing on the wall, the system is approaching its end, some still communist politicians tried to play this game directly. There were a couple of politicians who tried to become more popular with the people by telling at official meetings jokes about themselves. Like I remember, I will not name him one Croat politician who made such a fun of his visit to Germany. You must know this joke, it's the most brutal one. She was telling, you know what happened to me when I went to Germany? I was on a train passing Baden-Baden and I asked my begleiter, uh, what's this uh, for a city? He said, Baden-Baden, you know the joke. And I answered, uh, uh, and my reply was, well, I'm not stupid. You don't have to tell me two times, and so on. There is even another version of this joke. He simply thought that 
in Germany, when you are asked where you are from, you have to tell the name twice. So when the begleiter asked him, and where are you from? He said, I'm from Zagreb, Zagreb, you know, he thought that. Uh, but again, my point is the absolutely constructive nature of this jokes. Uh, uh, so, uh, 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 two points to conclude this part. First, we have absolutely to abandon, I claim, this vision of we live stiff, bureaucratic, totally controlled lives, and then carnival, freedom, you know, those who are kings are now beggars, beggars are kings, social hierarchy dissolves. I think, no, capitalism is already a carnival of its own. And from my friend Boris Groys, I learned something wonderful. If some of you know literary theory, you know that the great theorist of social carnival is Mikhail Bakhtin, the uh, one of the, uh, uh, the how do you call it, uh, uh, the one uh, uh, compagnon de route uh, of, uh, uh, of uh, Russian formalists with, in his book uh, on Francois Rabelais. But now, Groys told me they found some archives of Bakhtin where you learn something quite unexpected, that Bakhtin did not simply celebrate Carnival as the wonderful moment of liberation and so on. No, his secret model for Carnival were Stalinist purges and Gulag. That's the true Carnival. Today you are a member of the Central Committee, tomorrow you are a traitor, nobody in Gulag and so on. So in, even in racism or fascism, there is definitely a Carnivalist aspect even to Nazism and so on and so on. So, that's my first point. Don't, the true problem is daily life. That's the really difficult to change. The ordinary daily life, how things really change there. Uh, the American film producer, Sam Goldwyn, he's an interesting guy. He was always making stupid mistakes or nonsenses, but now we know they were all planned. He had a nice irony. Um, uh, uh, that's one of his legends. Once some journals attacked his films produced by him that there are too many old cliches in them. You know what was the memo he, Goldwyn, wrote to his scenario department? We urgently need new original cliches. And he was right. That's the most difficult thing to do. New cliches. New forms which are precisely cliches for everyday life. And I'm even ready to go here further. I think all this dream about local grassroots permanent engagement, I even personally don't like it. Would you really like to live in a local community where every afternoon you would have a meeting, how to organize kindergarten, how to organize electricity, this, that? No, thanks. I want to live in a nice alienated society where all this is done by an anonymous institution and I read my books, watch my films, and so on and so on. Uh, at this point, we have to confront the question of democracy. I'm not against democracy. The problem for me is only that democracy, well, it's not a word which, how should I put it, divides. I claim, and I agree here again with my friend Alain Badiou, a true idea or concept divides in the sense that you use it in order to draw a distinction between 
naively ideology and truth or whatever. Democracy doesn't work like that. It can designate something very authentic, I know, but we all know what other things can be covered, legitimized with the appeal to uh, democracy. I claim that democracy in a certain ideological sense often functions in a literal Freudian sense as a fetish. You know, for Freud, fetish is basically the last thing you see before you see the castration, in the naive sense that a woman doesn't have a penis and so on and so on. And I think that in our societies, in its everyday use, democracy is also a fetish in the sense of it's that which prevents us to see the radicality of, social, of our social antagonisms. Let me give you an example from cinema. You know all those big Hollywood leftist blockbusters, all the president's men, Pelican Brief, and so on and so on. The story is always the same. A couple of ordinary people, lawyers, journalists, discover a mega scandal which reaches up to the president of the United States. So corruption is shown to reach the very top. So you will say, my God, wonderful. It shows the truth about American democracy. Why then do we feel so good after these films? Because we are satisfied because the message of the film is what a great democratic country is our country where a couple of ordinary guys like you and me can bring down the president, the mightiest man on earth. That's what's false about these films. That's why, but I don't have time for this, although politically, of course, I'm very sympathetic towards Die Linke, but I have a problem, theoretical, for practical strategic reasons, I have nothing against it, with a term like uh, democratic socialism. I think that both words are suspicious for me. Democratic, it's again blurring, like uh, what democracy? It's not everybody is for democracy today. It means nothing. Socialism, it's the same. My God, I read an interview with Bill Gates where he says in some deeper sense, I'm a socialist. Socialism basically means in everyday ideological, in its everyday ideological, only something like, yeah, yeah, not just personal egotism, we should also care about community and so on. No, so I agree with Otto Weininger, Geschlechtung character, that guy, who said, but of course, I mean it in the opposite sense, that Socialism is Aryan and communism is Jewish. That's why I have problem with a democratic uh, socialism. So what do all these confusions indicate? The basic problem is the following one. The eternal story of contemporary left is that of a leader or party elected with universal enthusiasm promising a new world, Mandela, Syriza, and so on. But then, sooner or later, they stumble upon the key dilemma. Does one dare to touch the capitalist mechanisms? Or does one decide to play the game? If one disturbs the capitalist mechanisms, one is swiftly punished by market perturbations, economic chaos, and so on. Today's protests and revolts are 
usually sustained by the combination or even overlapping of different levels. We fight for, if the country is authoritarian, for normal parliamentary democracy. We fight against racism and sexism, especially the hatred directed at immigrants and refugees. We fight for the welfare state against neoliberalism. We fight against corruption in politics and economy. We fight for new forms of democracy. And finally, questioning the global capitalist system as such. Now, I claim we have to avoid here both extremes. On the one hand, the abstract radical leftist position, which basically means nothing, which is what really matters is the abolition of liberal parliamentary capitalism. All other fights are secondary. But we should also avoid false gradualism. Now we fight for simple democracy, forget your socialist dreams, they come later, and so on, and so on. Uh, the problem is nonetheless this one. Let's take the big revolts of the last years, like Tahrir Square uh, in Egypt. It's easy to mobilize the people against corruption, unfreedom, humiliation, and so on and so on. But then the entire strategy of global capitalist system is that you get literally what you wanted, but at a different, sorry, at a deeper level, things do not really change. You know, and that's then the crucial moment of disappointment that I designated in the title of my talk today as uh, how to go beyond Mandela, because ANC in South Africa won, the price was to accept global capitalist coordinates. How to go further than that without falling into, without becoming Mugabe, this ridiculous excess of false liberation, of perverted liberation uh, struggle. Uh, the tragedy is that the ruling ideology today uses all its instruments to block, to prevent this uh, radicalization. They tell us that, uh, I mean, the latest theory, uh, my preferred one is the, uh, is the it's uh, developed by Maurizio Lazzarato in his um, uh, the rise of the indebted man, this idea of self-entrepreneurship, that in a modern democratic society, the difference between capitalists and workers is basically only a quantitative one. The idea is, let's say you're a poor worker, and then you get, uh, get indebted, take a credit for 20,000 euros, and then you are free to do whatever you want with it. You can invest it into your health, into a big holiday, into better uh, health care for your children, into universities for your children. So the idea is even a modest worker is today a self-entrepreneur, a small capitalist. We are all capitalists, responsible through our free choices for our for our, uh, uh, for our destiny, and so on, and so on. Uh, and this is where ideology is operative today. For example, take the so-called theory 
of not Ulrich Beck, he was a little bit better, your Zweite Moderne, but the English version with Anthony Giddens. His point, and it's a masterful ideological trick, is to present you the very new forms of oppression, exploitation, as forms of freedom. For example, it's very difficult, as we know, it's less and less possible today to get a permanent job. The tendency of capitalism is to move towards the predominance of so-called precarious work. You get one, two years contract, you are never sure, and so on and so on. This then is presented to you as a new freedom. Anthony Giddens developed this, like, isn't it wonderful? You are not like a cliche, reduced to a permanent role. Every two years you can reinvent yourself, you can, you know, or, or for example, you don't get universal health care. Isn't this wonderful? You can make a free decision. Do you prefer health care or do you prefer a good holiday or whatever? You see the trick. The trick is that actual unfreedom is presented to you as the growth in your, as growth in your freedom. So what should we do? Ah, uh, here comes my point, especially in times like today. What works for us is that nonetheless, capitalism is inconsistent. It, it is necessarily inconsistent. It breaks its own rules all the time. You have democracy, but there are places where there is no democracy, and so on and so on. So I claim that what we should be doing today, mostly, is not wait for the big revolution, but find what I would like to call, again, following Badiou, le point d'impossible, the points of impossibility of the system, which means apparently small specific demands which appear totally realistic but for a concrete society they are the sensitive points uh, even here i even have a soft spot for obama the president i mean some of the leftist critics of obama are a little bit stupid they behave as if what did they think that he will introduce uh, communism into the United States? And they, no, remember, or if you followed it, for example, the point of impossibility for United States, already not for Canada, point of impossibility in the sense of something which is unbearably traumatic for the predominant ideology was obviously universal healthcare. You know what happened to Obama by insisting on at least some form of universal healthcare? He was brought to Supreme Court and so on. It was traumatic. And it, nobody can accuse him of socialism or whatever, although a total idiot like that actor Chuck Norris did accuse him of <laughs> introducing communism. But what I want to say is that I want to refer here to the wonderful scene of science fiction films. The idea is this Truman Show. You live in an artificial reality, and then if you touch a wrong object, all of reality, the, the, like, like you are in a room and there is a button. You press that button and walls start to fall down, the whole reality disintegrates. But it's a modest point, and that works. 
And of course, different countries have situations, have different points of impossibility. And this is where we should begin, because it's a demand which is totally legal. It's not prohibited. Like, there is nothing illegal in demanding uh, uh, universal health service in United States. And again, each situation has its own point of impossibility. Like in a country like Turkey, ordinary multiculturalism, the rights for Kurds and other minorities is obviously another point of uh, impossibility, and so on and so on. But what I want to tell you is, and this is also my memory from I wasn't a great dissident, but some kind of dissident, smaller, in ex-Yugoslavia. I remember there, at least in the last decade, this may shock you, communists easily tolerated big demands. Like if you wrote a, I'm not kidding, this literally happened. If you wrote a treatise claiming Yugoslav communism is worse than Stalinism, it's oppressive in more refined way, communist project is the greatest catastrophe in humanity, whatever, they basically paid you the plane, gave you the plane ticket to go to the West to some anti-communist congress. Nobody cared about that. But if you said naively, like, as a communist, I don't like that specific law, change that specific law, or that specific, a totally modest demand, totally justifiable by the ruling ideology, even uh, you risk to be arrested, and so on. So we had, that was a big lesson for me, we have a whole small class, dozens, but nonetheless, of, let's call them official dissidents. They make a pact with nomenclatura, like, yes, you do, you know, all that open society, Popper from Plato, Rousseau, Marx, bad guys, catastrophe, you do all this, we don't care. Just don't be too concrete here with small, concrete uh, demands, and so on, and so on. Uh, uh, and here, because of this inconsistency of capitalism, it's worth, but we should be very careful which fights we select. It's worth fighting these apparently modest fights. Sometimes, that would be my ultimate Hegelian self-referential irony, even capitalism can be used against capitalism. I remember one of my most depressing uh, experiences is when 15 years ago, I think, I watched on CNN, CNN was a little bit better than it's now at that point, uh, a report on Mali, where the Minister of Agriculture of Mali said, listen, we don't want any state intervention help from you, just follow your own rules, because he said Mali in Africa, the African Republic, produces excellent cotton. And it's difficult for them to export it. Why? Because Americans subsidize their cotton producers. They give to them, as financial aid, more money than the entire state budget of Mali. So his message was, just follow your own market rules. You know, everything can be used here. Or another topic, slavery. We know the paradox of capitalism, how slavery, which more or less, one should be careful here, disappeared in Western world around 15th century. We know how from early capitalism onwards, slavery exploded. And I claim that now 
in a way, it's returning. It, in a slightly different form, but it's returning. I saw this when I visited, as a tourist, of course, not officially, Dubai, Qatar, and those places. These are de facto slave societies. The majority of people there are legal, but apartheid excluded workers from, from Nepal to Indonesia and so on, who are totally deprived of all rights and so on, passports taken from them, they can be arrested, deported, whatever, total exploitation. Uh, uh, then, not to mention other forums, not even only in third world Arabia, Africa, like massive slavery, de facto slavery in Congo and so on. But do you remember in December of 2013, when seven people died in a Chinese-owned clothing factory in an industrial zone close to Firenze? Why did they die? Because they were de facto slaves. They lived in a small, in a, uh, uh, in a small house made out of remainders of uh, wood and so on. And then, shocking, shocked, they discovered that they have the whole slave camps in the suburb of Firenze. So I think that we shouldn't be too pessimist. The, again, the big art is to find that button to insist on small, well-chosen small points where everyone has to agree with you, like today, for example, with the refugees. Of course, I am for refugees, their rights, and I'm glad to be here. I was told what this theater is doing for them, allowing them to sleep here, helping them, and so on. But uh, isn't the enigma, for example, refugees escaping Syria and Iraq, Okay, I will not go through the ordinary, usual story, you know it, how the West is co-responsible for that crisis. But what I wanted to say is, but what about, do you know what happens? Why don't they go, do you know that the countries which have the same religion as most of the refugees, Sunni Muslims, extremely wealthy country, let's enumerate them, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Qatar, uh, uh, Emirates, they practically accept no refugees. And they are deeply involved in the crisis which generated refugees. Like, we know the role Saudi Arabia uh, uh, plays in financing some opposition to Assad in Syria, and so on, and so on. So, what about focusing on this point? For me, Saudi Arabia is almost a kind of ontological abomination today, a country which is a kind of a political equivalent, you know, those monsters which are sometimes born, like a cow with two heads and three legs or whatever. Why? Because on the one hand, it is, it presents itself as a traditional Muslim country, orthodox, uh, Sunni, Islam, and so on. But at the same time, it's a country which is basically an outpost of Western banks. I mean, investing money. It's a country which is financial capitalism at its purest. You know that Saudi Arabia owns almost 10% of the entire value, all factories and so on, of the United States. What about intervening a little bit more strongly there? I mean, when people criticize Iran today, I am critical of Iran, 
for curtailing women's rights and so on. But I can tell you that Iran is a feminist paradise compared with uh, Saudi Arabia and so on. You see, and of course, what I'm aiming at, here we approach theory, we don't, I don't have the time to go into it, is how, what opens up the space for radical political interventions today is the fact that capitalism can less and less stick to its own universality. For example, the ideal capitalism, even for Marx, was we are all formally free, workers, we are only the slavery enters, we have the same political rights, everyone, slavery enters through wage labor and so on and so on. Isn't it clear with all these new forms of apartheid, special economic zones and so on and so on that world capitalism can less and less afford even this ideological form of democracy. We are getting new and new forms of apartheid and so on and so on. So now I come to the crucial point of my talk. How to coordinate this multitude of struggles? I would like to refer here to a wonderful new film which you haven't yet seen. I saw a rough version, it's not yet finished, of my friend, the uh, uh, Jewish anti-Zionist pro-Palestinian movie maker Udi Aloni. He's just finishing a film, Junction 48. It's, uh, it will be... Uh, officially uh, shown at the next, in February now, when Berlin Film Festival. It deals with the difficult predicament of young Israeli-Palestinians, Palestinians who are settled within Israel in the borders of 49, pre-67, and whose everyday life involves a continuous struggle at two fronts against Israeli state oppression, as well as against the fundamentalist pressures from within their own community. The main role is played by Tamer Nafar, a well-known Israeli-Palestinian rapper who, in his music, not only deals with Israeli oppression, but also attacks, mocks the tradition of honor killings of Palestinian girls by their families. Then, and that's why I'm telling you this story, a strange thing happened to Nafar during a recent visit to the United States. At some college, I think it's UCLA, I'm not sure, after Nafar performed his song protesting honor killings, some anti-Zionist students reproached him for promoting the Zionist view of Palestinians as barbaric primitives. Their line was that uh, if there are any honor killings among Palestinians, Israel is responsible for them since the Israeli occupation keeps Palestinians in primitive conditions and so on and so on. You know, this was typical pseudo-radicalism of, uh, of course, white wealthy students in a rich American university. And Nafar gave them a dignified, wonderful reply. I quote it literally. When you criticize me, you criticize my, my own community in English to impress your radical professors. I sing in Arabic to protect the women in my own hood. 
End of quote. So an important aspect of Navar's position is that he is not just protecting Palestinian girls from family terror. He is allowing them to fight for themselves, to take the risk. It's not a patronizing position. And again, the film deals with all of it. So that's the problem. This tension between, you know, that's my problem. On the one hand, we have, of course, uh, struggle with the oppressed people and so on and so on. On the other hand, we have our own struggles, feminist struggle, struggle against religious fundamentalism and so on and so on. What I absolutely don't accept is this idea that on behalf of a greater struggle, anti-imperialist struggle, we should somehow uh, uh, abstain from advocating our feminist, uh, gay rights, and so on, struggles. As my, now you will say nobody advocates this. No, maybe not publicly, but I, practically the majority of my leftist friends tell me privately, you know, I know they have honor killings, religious oppression, but you know, it's not the moment to emphasize this to, too much. You know, it, it happens to me all the time, and I, think we should break this taboo. I think the multiculturalist defense of different ways of life covers up the antagonisms within each of these particular ways of life. Uh, let me give you an example. Now we come to Mugabe. Mugabe recently gave a talk at the United Nations General Assembly uh, and basically his talk was a justification for brutal homophobia, but formulated in anti-colonial struggle terms. A quote from Mugabe. Respecting and upholding human rights is the obligation of all states, and it's enshrined in the United Nations Charter. Nowhere does the Charter arrogate the right to some to sit in judgment over others, in carrying out this universal obligation. In that regard, we reject the politicization of this important issue, homosexuality, uh, and the application of double standards to victimize those who dare to think and act independently of the self-anointed prefects of our time. We reject the attempts to prescribe new rights, he means gay rights, that are contrary to our values, norms, traditions, and beliefs. Then he emphasized, we are not gays. Cooperation and respect for each other will advance the cause of human rights worldwide. Confrontation, vilification, and double standards will not. End of quote. What can Mugabe's emphatic claim, we are not gays, mean? with regard to the fact that for certain there are many gays, also in Zimbabwe. It means, of course, that gays are reduced to an oppressed minority whose acts are often directly criminalized. But one can understand the underlying logic. The gay movement is perceived as the cultural impact of globalization and as 
a way globalization undermines traditional social and cultural forms. So the conclusion is the struggle against gays is an aspect of the anti-colonialist struggle. And the same even holds for Boko Haram. For certain radical Muslims, the liberation of women appears as the most visible feature of the destructive cultural impact of capitalist modernization. Therefore, Boko Haram, which I hope you know what the name means, it can roughly be translated as Western education of women specifically is forbidden. Boko Haram can perceive itself as a way of fighting the destructive aspect of capitalist modernization. But the, the idea is that hierarchic regulation of the relations between the two sexes is how you fight capitalism. And uh, this paradox, I think, at least should give us to think. Namely, the paradox that uh, we have movements today, not only in Muslim countries, up to a point even in Putin's Russia, where what they really find unbearable in the West is not military interventions, is not global capitalist economy, but what they call this liberal, dissolute, immoral, whatever way of life. For example, in the short book on Islam that I published with Ulstein, I quote it there, Khomeini said, it's a very important passage, he said, we do not fear Western military superiority. We can fight that. We have martyrs. We do not fear Western economic imperialism. We can organize ourselves. What we do fear is the dissolute Western way of life. And the sad thing is that, and you can detect this even in how Putin and Russian establishment reacted to the victory of that ridiculous singer, you remember, Conchita Wurst, Eurovision and so on. I have no sympathy for him, her. I'm, I'm here a conservative. But nonetheless, I know that how all of a sudden, and Boko Haram is the extreme example of this. Uh, sexual became political, but not in the sense of the late 60s, but in a very paradoxical way that the basic political program of escaping capitalist decadence is to reintroduce uh, proper hierarchy in relations between sexes. Here, now, I will go to the edge of what is problematic in wha what I'm saying. Here, I remain a little bit of a Eurocentrist. In what sense? Of course, I totally agree with this. Refugees should enjoy the same rights as the members of other diverse communities that make up Europe. So I'm up I admire what you are doing. I'm engaged in doing this. I am, I am even ready to adopt the radical leftist view and to claim that it's even wrong to treat them as foreign refugees. No, they are part of us. We are co-responsible for that situation. It's not this Deridean, Jacques Derrida topic of hospitality, a foreigner comes, you have to be kind to him. No, they are part of our world. We do not even have the right to treat them as coming from another world. But 
The catch for me is this one. Yes, they have to enjoy the same rights as all of us, but which exactly are these same rights? While Europe is now fighting for full gay and women's rights, the right to abortion, same-sex marriage, same marriages, and so on, uh, uh, should this right also be uh, extended to gays and women among the refugees, even if they are in conflict with the customs they bring with themselves? And this, again, this aspect should in no way be dismissed as marginal. I am here again for a certain level of Eurocentrism. Yes, you should have the same rights, but also your women should have the same rights. Also your uh, gays among you should have the same rights and so on and so on. Now, of course, they are quite justified in saying, but this is Eurocentrism, because they will say in our traditional universe, collective rights play a stronger role than individual rights. By allowing so much freedom to individuals, you already undermine our culture. No, I think here we should insist on our own. I am, I am not afraid to say this, even if some idiots already proclaim me being, uh, that I'm passing over to Pegida. Oh my God. Uh, another taboo that must be overcome involves the equation of any reference to European emancipatory legacy as cultural imperialism and racism. I know I've written about it, in what way Western liberalism justifies colonialism and so on and so on. But I wonder why is it exactly now that it's so fashionable to be a critique of Eurocentrism? My claim is that in this situation today, a certain degree of Eurocentrism is worth defending. Why? Because I see this globalization almost of anti-Eurocentrism as an indication of a very sad fact that today's global capitalism no longer needs democracy, equality, and so on, but functions quite well with an authoritarian structure. Today, for me, the ideal capitalist would have been who? Like the Indian Prime Minister, Modi, who is at the same time in economy a radical neoliberal. He openly said the chance for India is to have even a cheaper labor force than China, to sell them to Western companies, millions of Indians, and so on and so on. At the same time, he is clearly a, a, a Hindu nationalist, and so on. So, so uh, isn't it it's for me so symptomatic that one tends to reject Western cultural values at the very moment when critically reinterpreted, many of those values, egalitarianism and so on, can serve as a weapon against capitalist globalization. Did we already forget that the entire idea of communist emancipation, as envisaged by Marx, is a radically Eurocentric one? I claim paradoxically, and I'm ready to defend to death this paradox, that. Uh, uh, Enlightened self-critical Eurocentrism is the only way to really break out of Eurocentrism. I bet I 
agree with the basic point, I repeated it endlessly, that the true danger to Europe are not Muslim terrorists or Muslim invasions. The true danger to Europe are the fundamentalist anti-immigrant defenders of Europe. Let's be clear here. That's what I fear. No doubt about it. But precisely because of this, I'm not afraid to claim, no, sorry, it's not enough to just play this endless game of uh, self-humiliation. Yes, we Europeans are guilty for everything. All our values are fake values. The more we think we are free, the more we are enslaving others, and so on and so on. Don't we see that the very way we criticize ourselves is rooted in European tradition. I think that the best way to criticize actual cultural imperialism and so on, it is true being faithful to the emancipatory core of European enlightened uh, tradition. Because, you know, cultural imperialism never had any problem with cultural diversity. I discovered in India that, you know that in 18th century, traditional Hindu hierarchy was already disappearing. And then when the British colonized India, they had a very intelligent idea that the only way to control Indians is not to allow Indian society to disintegrate into modernization. In this way, you would have proletarians, you would have Western politicization, but to take care that the majority of Indians will remain faithful to their, uh, uh, to their caste society and so on. So, one of the most horrible books of ideology of all time, The Loss Legal System of Manu, the total manual of, uh, with all sub-differences of caste society, with uh, all the rules, was resuscitated in 19th century by the British colonizers. So, uh, no, now to conclude, if you allow me a little bit more time, and this will be a little bit more amusing, but also I hope so uh, problematic for you, I want to move at a deeper level of, uh, let's say, anthropological uh, level. I find so when precisely we are dealing with refugees and other foreigners. What makes me absolutely tired, and I think although it sounds nice, it's politically uh, catastrophic, I claim, is this accent on humanitarian, uh, on, on, uh, on uh, humanitarian compassion and so on and so on. No, I you know, this idea of let me give you the formula which condenses the evil for me. It sounds as a very deep formula. <laughs> it is. The formula is that uh, uh, immediately an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. It sounds so deep, you know. Other people are foreigners for us, but listen to their story and you will see no, I'm brutally. This is one of the greatest stupidities that you can imagine. How? Just, just apply it to a guy, a well-known German politician who I was told by Karl Heinz, 
The myth is that he stayed in the same hotel that I stay here, Reichshof, Hitler. Are you ready to say Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to listen to his story? No, sorry, there are enemies, real enemies. What does this mean? That the truth of what you do is not in the story. They read too much deconstructionists in this idiot. It's not that we are the stories we are telling ourselves about ourselves. No, we are the horror which we are doing and we construct the stories to, to make, to obfuscate the true horror of what we are doing. The truth is in what you are doing, not, there is always a story about, it's wonderful to read how, I've written a text on it, how behind every ethnic cleansing there are some poets. Why? Because, you know, basically, I hope so, we are not totally bad. Like if someone were to tell me now, go there and pick out that guy's eyes and eat them, well, I would find it a little bit difficult. So what I need is a strong poetic or religious myth which makes me perceive the horror that I will do as the ultimate ethical sacrifice and so on. And for this, you need mythologists, you need poets. It's not only Karadzic of Bosnia, everyone had its own, its own uh, Karadzic. So my point is what? That we don't need more understanding and so on. This is again this liberal trick of, oh, we never understand enough the other and so on and so on. Uh, I am here for a return to in all provocative content of this uh, uh, Judeo-Christian notion of uh, neighbor. Neighbor in Judeo-Christian tradition is not a fellow man, it's not a guy who is like you. You encounter a neighbor when you see the abyss in the other. You know, let's say I have a friend, I think I know him. Then all of a sudden that friend does something either horrible or maybe sublime, but he appears as a stranger to me, like, my God, I didn't know he is like that. At that point, you see the neighbor. In this sense, that stupid postmodern phrase has some truth in it, that we are not only strangers to, your, to others, but strangers to ourselves. This is why whenever you hear about universal love, comprehension, and so on, there is something false about it. I think that uh, I wouldn't like to live in a society where uh, I would like to live, and I often did, in a big apartment house where there is an Indian here, an Arab there, a Jew there, a, a Latino American there, but I don't want to understand them. I want polite distance, respect. Maybe from time to time I get close to someone, but it's a miracle. How can we understand each other fully when we even don't understand ourselves? That was my first one. I mean, it's wrong to think that, uh, like, you see what I mean? Uh, I don't think a foreign culture, ours included, that we should focus on some hidden core that we should fully understand and so on and so on. No, the whole point is to learn to maintain 
a proper, uh, to maintain a proper distance. And especially, I think, this holds for uh, refugees, you know, this idea of, but refugees are not so bad, listen to them, they are people like us. Oh, I'm so afraid of this. No, no, because, precisely because I'm for refugees. Because, you know, then you always discover, of course, that, my God, refugees are shitty people like us. Some are good, many are bad. Of course, if you get hundreds of thousands of them, there will be rapists and so on among them. So uh, the worst thing, you respect their otherness, not their sameness. Don't play this game, which is always ideological game of we are all humans. You know where I learned this lesson? When I was in Israel, uh, a weird thing happened reported in all the media there. And Israeli anti-terrorist unit brutally entered the Palestinian home because they suspected the father of the family is a terrorist. And he was not at home, the father, but there was mother with some children. And of course, when soldiers brutally enter your apartment, you are in a panic. So the girl starts to cry, starts to shout, cry, and mother called her, I don't know what, by name. Oh, be calm, come to me, everything okay? And then uh, came the kick, you know, like an Israeli soldier discovered that, my God, this girl has the same name as my own girl. And he showed the mother the photo, you know. You see, we are human all, and so on, and so on. This is falsity at its purest. The true ideology is not, we are not just figures of ideology, we are all humans, no. The most, di no, differences matter. We are not all humans in this same sense. That's the respect to the others, where you don't accept this simple, uh, this simple uh, universalization and so on and so on. The most, again, the most dangerous thing is to uh, idealize the other. That's true actual racism for me, like open yourself to them and so on. No. Treat them respectfully, absolutely admit them in their otherness, and so on and so on. Uh, so, uh, 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 just to now, really to conclude with two problematic points concerning the refugees. Another way of idealizing refugees is, and many of my radical leftist friends play this game, I'm horrified at this. The idea is this one. I will not name them, it would be embarrassing, but many of my radical leftist friends, they tell you this secretly, privately, very well-known names, but uh, will not mention them, is that, you know, today there is such a crisis, we cannot arouse people to be more radical that we need a mega catastrophe, ecological or atomic incident, millions dead, the only thing that will move people, and some of them now included refugees into this. Like, a friend recently wrote to me, let's bring 10 million refugees in Europe and they will form the base of the new work, revolutionary working class. And I said, ah, that's it, you're a Marxist, you don't have a revolutionary class, so let's import one. <laughs> I mean, it's absurdity. The second thing, Precisely out of respect for the refugees, I claim 
that I'm tired of this Habermasian and of some others motive of so-called democratic deficit of European Union. The basic idea is European Union is okay, it just has a democratic deficit. This reminds me of my old communist colleagues from the times of real, so when they said Soviet Union, DDR, it's basically okay, it just has a little bit of democratic deficit. No, the point is that this democratic deficit is, uh, is, uh, is, is, uh, part, of the, is part of the system. Uh, and I'm even ready to go further here. I had recently a debate two, three days ago with Yanis Varoufakis and Assange in London, where I think Varoufakis, my very good friend, was a little bit naive, because his point of Varoufakis was uh, Europe has to democratize itself, render all of it transparent and so on, people should decide. But then I told him about my very sad experience. Maybe some of you read it. I gave uh, a, a month ago or when an interview to the Deutsche Zeitung, and then they asked me to answer some readers' questions, and then they told me one question addressed at me, which evoked most of interest among the readers, they get hundreds of replies to it, was precisely democratic question, but anti-immigrant democratic question. It was the question, if we live in democratic society, who authorized Angela Merkel to call hundreds of thousands of people to move to Germany? Where is the democratic right here? She should be prosecuted and so on and so on. Now, Varoufakis' answer was, this is confusion. If there really were to be a referendum, Merkel would have won here. I doubt it. I'm simply more of a pessimist. I simply think, no, majority can be wrong, and most of the time, maybe even it is wrong. This doesn't mean that we need an enlightened communist party <laughs> to lead them, but just we have to, we have to accept this, that, you know, for democracy to work, Many other things have to work. Democracy in itself doesn't necessarily, uh, doesn't necessarily uh, change things for the better. So to conclude, just two things. I hope you will find them amusing. Two quotes. The first one, the best reply what to do for the refugees, is, uh, I hope you know, you should read it, Oscar Wilde. His wonderful short text, The Soul of Man Under Socialism, where in the opening lines, he points out that, quote, it is much more easy to have sympathy with suffering than it is to have sympathy with thought, Denken. And here is the quote. People find themselves surrounded by terrible poverty, by ugliness, by starvation. It is inevitable that they should be strongly moved by all this. Accordingly, with admirable, though misdirected intentions, they very seriously and very sentimentally set themselves to the task of remedying the evils that they see. But their remedies do not cure the disease, they merely prolong it. Indeed, their remedies are part of the disease. They try to solve the problem of poverty, for instance, by keeping the poor alive or in the case of a very advanced school, by amusing the poor. But this is not a solution. It is an aggravation of the difficulty. The proper aim is to try and reconcile, 
reconstruct society on such a basis that poverty will be impossible. And the altruistic virtue have really prevented the carrying out of this aim. That's why, that's my point of capitalism and so on. Of course, we should unconditionally help the refugees. But the solution is not the world stays the same, we just help the refugees. We will have to do more, change the economic system. I don't know, I don't know in what way. And my last point, this is the saddest point. You know, there is genuine hatred. Jews, Palestinians, third world, and so on. And what came to my mind here is a very sad lesson. Look, it's the last page, don't be afraid. Uh, I recently read Ruth Klüger. She survived as a girl. Auschwitz, memoirs, still alive. A Holocaust girlhood remembered. Where she describes, after she survived, after World War II in Germany, a conversation with some uh, uh, doctoral student here in Germany. Here is the quote. One reports how in Jer Jerusalem he, this student, made the acquaintance of an old Hungarian Jew who was the survivor of Auschwitz. And yet this man cursed the Arabs and held them all in contempt. How can someone who comes from Auschwitz talk like that? The German asks. I get into the act and argue. But what did he expect? Auschwitz was no educational, instructional institution. You learned nothing there. And, and least of all humanity and tolerance. Absolutely nothing good came out of the concentration camps. And there is no catharsis the sort of thing you go to, to theater for. They were the most useless, pointless establishments imaginable. I think this is a crucial prejudice that we have to abandon. No, there is nothing noble in suffering, as if, if you've seen that, you will emerge as a wise man, understanding. No, Auschwitz, and that's the, also the horror of Auschwitz. It's not just what it does to you, from the outside, uh, torch, whatever, we know what. It's, there is no ethical greatness in it, like this heroism, you survive it, and so on, and so on. This is what is so horrible about suffering. It doesn't produce poor people, but poor people who, because they experience suffering, they know how to be good. No, it ruins you from the inside. That's why the worst thing you can do is dealing with refugees or with poor among us is to idealize them. They are poor, but they have a certain nobility and so on and so on. No, the problem is to accept that they don't have this nobility, but precisely because they were ruined by the system and so on. No, it's not as easy as that, as it is, you know, the classical Hollywood kitsch Frank Capra films, where the idea is all people, poor people are really wonderful, good. You just have to hear them to discover their inner beauty. No, there is no inner beauty. Thank you very much.